couple days ago, we celebrated or commemorated the 19th anniversary since the attack on our trade towers and attack on our country. And uh, it seems like every year when that happens, there's a lot of thoughts, a lot of memories that come. Some of you remember exactly where you were when that happened. I was on my way to Pennsylvania to preach a revival meeting on the tollway. And uh, I remember my brother called me. He said, did you hear what happened? I said, no, what? He goes, somebody flew into the trade tower. And I'm like, well, was it an accident? He goes, I don't know yet. And all of a sudden, as I'm talking to him, the second one hit. And uh, I remember I was right next to the exit going into a rest area, and I pulled in there, and everybody was swarmed around the TV in the center of the, you know, area inside the rest area. And, you know, they have all these thoughts. Are we being attacked? Is another world war starting? You remember all the fears, the concerns, and everything that was running through our minds during that time, but... I remember very distinctly it was the next day that had almost an equally um, impactive thought on my mind. Because of the unknowns of the day before, there were a lot of people the following day who were driven to their knees. And as a country, people were, maybe for the first time for many, concerned about spiritual things. People who never gave a thought to it earlier were all of a sudden concerned. Churches across America had a surge of att- in attendance. But then a third thought came. As fast as it had an impact, as fast as things began to change, it dissipated and went back to the norm. And Max Lucado, I guess every year I come back to this and I read this and I think it's an important thing to consider. He just wrote a prayer uh, that he basically gave to his church regarding 9-11. And I just want to read the prayer. And maybe with our eyes closed and just as a, in a thought of prayer towards our God, maybe we can echo these same words. It says, Dear Lord, we're still hoping we'll wake up. We're still hoping we'll open a sleepy eye and think, what a horrible dream. But we won't, will we, Father? What we saw was not a dream. Planes did gouge towers. Flames did consume our fortress. People did perish. It was no dream, and dear Father, we are sad. There is a ballet dancer who will no longer dance, and a doctor who will no longer heal. A church has lost her priest. The classroom is minus a teacher. Cora ran a food pantry. Paige was a counselor. And Dana, dearest Father... Dana was only three years old, who held her in the, those final moments. We are sad, Father, for as the innocent are buried, our innocence is buried as well. We thought we were safe. Perhaps we should have known better, but we didn't. And so we come to you. We don't ask you for help. We beg you for it. We don't request it. We implore it. We know what you can do. We've read the accounts. We've pondered the stories and Now we plead, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Remember, Joseph, you rescued him from the pit. And you can do the same for us. Do it again, Lord. Remember the Hebrews in Egypt? You protected their children from the angel of death. We have children too. Lord, do it again. And Sarah, remember her prayers? 
You heard them. Joshua, you remember his fears? You inspired him. The woman at the tomb, you resurrected their hope. The doubts of Thomas, you took them away. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. You changed Daniel from a captive into a king's counselor. You took Peter the fisherman and made him Peter an apostle. Because of you, David went from leading a sheep to leading armies. Do it again, Lord, for we need counselors today, Lord. We need apostles. We need leaders. Do it again, dear Lord. Most of all, do it again, what you did at Calvary. We saw here on that Tuesday, you saw there on that Friday, innocent slaughtered, goodness murdered, mothers weeping, evil dancing, just as the ash fell on our children, the darkness fell on your son. Just as our towers were shattered, the very tower of eternity was pierced. And by dusk, heaven's sweetest song was silent, buried behind a rock. But you did not waver, O Lord, you did not waver. After three days in a dark hole, you rolled the rock and rumbled the earth and turned the darkest Friday into the brightest Sunday. Do it again, Lord. Grant us a September Easter. We thank you, dear Father, for these hours of unity. Disaster has done what discussion could not. Doctrinal fences have fallen. Republicans are standing with Democrats. Skin colors have been covered by the ash of burning buildings. We thank you for these hours of unity. And we thank you for these hours of prayer. The enemy sought to bring us to our knees and succeeded. He had no idea, however, that we would kneel before you. And he has no idea what you can do. Let your mercy be upon our president, vice president, their families. Grant to those who lead us wisdom beyond their years and experience. Have mercy upon the souls who have departed and the wounded who remain. Give us grace that we might forgive and faith that we might believe. And look kindly upon our church, your church. For 2,000 years, you've used her to heal a hurting world. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. I think if if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we need to see a movement of God again. We need to see the day after 9-11 again, where people are driven to their knees and depend upon a holy God because we cannot fix these issues ourselves. Answer is not in politics. The answer is not in movements. It's the answer is in Jesus Christ, and we need Him to do a work that we cannot do ourselves. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Lord, we are blessed above many nations. I have visited other countries, Lord. I've been to India and several countries of Africa, and and Lord. We are truly blessed. We have so much. And yet, we live in a land that is divided. It's full of disunity and hurt and selfishness and pride. And Lord, yet, with all the struggles and everything that's taken place around us, Lord, we are still blessed. And I pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would bring a revival across our country. Lord, the answer is not in a president. It's not in a governor. It's not in local legislation and legislators. It's in the word of God. And it's in the hope of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I pray that you would use that act to impact hearts and lives for all eternity. Lord, we pray for a revival. 
I pray you'd start here in this church at Harvest Bible. Lord, that you'd allow all of us to be honest about who we are before a holy God. And Lord, be willing to let the Holy Spirit mold us and make us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, start with me. Start with this church and this community to accomplish your will in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever met me, myself, and I? I think they are quite possibly the most selfish people I've ever encountered. They're constantly concerned with themselves and how they would, and, uh, how, the, how the world could better revolve around them. And whoever they come in contact with, well, they're often made aware very quickly just how important they are and why everyone else should listen to them. You know, they should take their advice and follow them. In fact, people who might disagree with me, myself, and I are made to feel very incompetent and are often belittled. Just maybe you've encountered them at one point or another in your life. Well, let's see what selfishness is. By definition, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, selfishness is being concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. That's selfishness. And I think we're living in a day where we're seeing selfishness all around us. God did not create us to be selfish. He created us to be selfless. And as long as selfishness is on the throne, as long as me, myself, and I rule in our hearts, God cannot. So this morning, for a few moments, we're going to look at several examples of selfishness. And, you know, the Bible is full of examples of different people who practice selfishness. And I don't know about you, but I don't really care to be around selfish people, even though I am myself sometimes. I wish I could honestly say, well, I've overcome that one. I'm never selfish. But just ask my kids, ask my wife. They'll know that I struggle with that. I think we all do. Not to justify it, but we need to learn to notice it when it's in our lives. We need to have the discernment to know that when we're being selfish, when we don't like what other people are doing, is it because I just want it my way and I don't really care for their way? When they say something and I disagree with them, is it just because I'm selfish or is it because it's biblically wrong? I think so often we land on the side of I'm just being selfish more than people are actually wrong because I want my way. Anyone else like that? I want my way. I want it when I want it, as often as I want it, as long as I want it. I want my way because I'm selfish by nature. My flesh is selfish. You've heard me say it numerous times over the years. If one burger is good, three is better. If one hot dog is good, three is better. If one dollar is good, three is better. Right? We're selfish. We want to please ourselves because that's our nature. It's our nature of being selfish. But we're going to look at several examples. So first of all, if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. And you see a picture of selfishness right away at the beginning of God's word. Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read part of the part of the passage, not the whole thing. But I want us to see something. And I pray as we go through this, that if you see something in the passage that applies to you, apply it to you. Don't think, well, that so-and-so needs to hear about this one. Or such-and-such needs to learn this principle. Maybe God has for you to learn it so that you can become more like Christ. So I want to begin reading in chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. 
So now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again this uh, time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And you begin to see here right away in the passage that he is upset. God had respect for one, but not for his. And all of a sudden, his whole countenance begins to change because, well, somebody did something that he didn't like. Hmm, I wonder how often that happens in our lives. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not doubt you, what, uh, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it regarding the sin here. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he's And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I want you to see something about selfishness in this passage. Selfishness is often more concerned about your own person than others. Selfishness is more concerned about your own person than others. See, God rejected his sacrifice, but he accepted Abel's, and he didn't like it. How often do we get mad at God or mad at others because we don't get our way? And really, the stem of it all is selfishness. I want what I want. I want the respect of others. I want the position that others have. I want the things that other people have. And when I don't get them, you know, someone often said that bitterness often comes in two fa- after two circumstances. Number one, I had something and God took it away, or I wanted something and God wouldn't give it to me. Bitterness comes into our life, and bitterness is really another form of selfishness because I want what I want, and God didn't let it happen. I wonder if that can be true in our own lives. So Cain, out of jealousy, kills his brother. In fact, if you look over cross-reference to 1 John chapter 3, Uh, Verses 11 and 12, he says this. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. A lot of times, the sinfulness that is in our heart stems from a heart of selfishness. And we need to be careful of that. But selfishness is being more concerned about our own person than that of others. In fact, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. You see the opposite side of this. Philippians chapter 2. And folks, let me just say as we're going through this, there are so many times that we in, in this life that we're living that we're seeing all kinds of selfishness. Um, you see it every day in the news. I want my way. I want this legislation. I want to have these rights. I want to, And really, a lot of it comes right down to the selfishness. I want my way. Well, why do I have to listen to you? You're not my boss. You're not my authority. But the bottom line is, look what Philippians chapter 2 reminds us of. Look at verse 4. First of all, in verse 4 it says this, Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So right away in God's word he says, listen, it's not just about you. It's not just about what you think and what you want and how you feel. You're also to consider 
the feelings and desires and circumstances of others. Then look back at verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let's be real honest just for a moment. When's the last time that in a moment of decision we thought to ourselves, I wonder how my decision will affect those around me. I wonder if I do this, how it may affect my family, how it may affect my coworker, how it may affect my fellow church members, how it may affect my neighbors, my relatives. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love looks at the interests of others around us. It's not selfish. But as we see in the life of Cain, he was more concerned about his own interests than those of others. And really, it's the stem of selfishness. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Kings. Look at another example. In 1 Kings, in chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. And I'm going to read a few verses here as well, beginning of verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. So the bottom line is, he wants something that is not his. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So it wasn't just that he didn't want the money. It wasn't that he just didn't want a better vineyard. It was an inheritance from his own father. And I think all of us can understand that. We'd want to keep something in the family that's been in the family and so forth. So verse 4 says, So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and wouldn't eat food. I mean, is it not a picture-perfect example of somebody who's pouting because he didn't get his way? Anybody ever guilty of that? All right. Okay. I, just saying. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he said I couldn't have what I wanted. He was crying like a little baby. Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters to Ahab's Ahab's name, sealed them with the seal, and sent letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with with high honor among the people, and seat two, two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles, who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them. And as it was written in the letters which he, she had sent to him, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. 
Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down and took possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Second aspect of selfishness. You say, well, in my life, I would never kill somebody to get what I want. No. But a second aspect of selfishness is this. You're more concerned with possessions than people. How often is something that you've wanted just taken root in your life? And you'll almost do anything to get it. See, King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard very badly, and he just went around pouting about it. He said, well, maybe I don't try to get what I want, but I'm pouting about what I don't get. Guys, how many of you have wives that would say that you're a powder? Don't raise your hand. I'm not a powder. Am I done? Okay, a couple times. Maybe more than a couple. Why? Because we're selfish. And we want what we want. And Ahab was definitely more concerned with possessions than people. So Jezebel, his wicked wife, had Naboth killed and gave his vineyard to Ahab. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says this. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the idea of money or possessions. Money and possessions will drive us to do things that we would never do apart from that desire. And if we're not careful, it can control us. So at Cain, you could be more concerned with your own person. Or with Ahab, you could be more concerned with possessions. Or there's a third example. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You'll see an example of selfishness from the life of David. I won't read the entire passage, but you'll get the idea here very, very quickly. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants out with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, so that she sent and told David and said, I am with child. I'll stop there just for a moment. You see, with Cain, Cain there was a concern for his own person. With Ahab, there was a concern for possessions and now as we come into the life of david there is a concern with pleasure more than contentment he wanted something that was not his and he stopped at nothing to take it how often are we more concerned with pleasure than contentment for a time he had no regard for the cost of that pleasure see when he took something that was not his it cost more than the moment it cost Uriah, his life, to hide it. 
how often does selfishness, when it takes root, lead to one problem, leads to another problem, leads to another problem? You see that all throughout the life of David here. That David took something that was not his to take. He had not considered the cost of his selfishness. We could read the rest of the story, but what you find out is that they had to try cover the sin. And oftentimes when you try cover the sin, it leads to more sin and more sin. And what's the stem? Selfishness. Because when it takes root, it begins to grow. You see, selfishness is concerned with pleasure rather than being content. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51 just for a moment. I want to read through this. You're probably familiar with this passage. But in Psalm chapter 51, we see the result. It's a prayer of repentance. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. I want to stop there right just for a moment. Did you catch what he said? The bones that you have broken, that they might be healed. That they may rejoice over that. Bones that you have broken may rejoice. You see, selfishness causes more than just hurt. It causes oftentimes, I believe, physical pain. Have you ever met somebody who is just strung out on drugs? Have you ever seen somebody who has lived a life, a hard life of alcohol? You ever see that it just does damage to their body? Physically? I've seen people in their 50s who can't walk because of years of alcoholism. I've seen people young who can't hardly move because of years of drugs. I have one friend who recently passed away. He'd often get drunk and he'd fall down a set of stairs regularly in his house. At my age, he could hardly walk because of the sinfulness of what overtook him. The bones that were broken, it does more than just emotional. Oftentimes it's physical. Why? Because I want what I want. When I want it. As often as I want it. As long as I want it. That's what selfishness does. And David was more concerned with pleasure than contentment. And because of that, God had to bring him to the woodshed, so to speak. And he had to do business with God. And that's why he said in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I think sometimes we need to come to reality with where we're at in our selfishness. Let's look at one more. In Matthew chapter 20, if you would turn your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 20. This one's kind of interesting. 
Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. I mean, is that pretty bold? I mean, I, I know, Jesus, you have a lot of people that are following you, a lot of people that are your disciples, but my, my boys, one on the right, one on the left. I mean, certainly you understand this, Jesus, I mean, because they're special. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with a baptism that I'm, that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So it went from mama asking for her boys to the boy saying, we're able. We can do this. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'll give you another aspect about selfishness. Not only in the life of Cain is it more concerned with his own person than that of others. Not only like Ahab is more concerned with possessions than people. Not only like David is he more concerned with pleasure than contentment. But like James and John is more concerned with position than with helping others. You see, to help others requires a spirit of humility, not selfishness. It's not about the position. It's about the, the place that God has for you and being content in that place at the moment. Are you willing to accept the position that God has for you, or are you always seeking for the position that you want? Selfishness seeks the position rather than being content where God has for you to be. They were not concerned with the others, what the others thought, and what they, how it might affect them, and their attitude really was quite worldly. They were only concerned about how it affected themselves. They were worried about the position. Can I just say this too, is that we need more humble servants. Over the years, and I've been in ministry now for 25 years, pastored all but three of those. And it's amazing how often somebody will say, well, I want this position, but I don't want this position. I'm willing to be an elder, but I don't want to be a deacon. I, I really would like to be a science school teacher, but I don't want to do this. And I've heard every excuse under the sun. People who want positions, but they don't really want to serve. They want to make decisions, but they don't really want to serve. I guess one of the things that impacted me greatly as a young junior high student was walking through the halls of my church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I remember on numerous occasions following behind my pastor, Pastor Clark Porman, and he'd see a little piece of paper on the floor, and he'd reach down and pick it up as he was on his way to his office. I can remember walking down the hallway and him just seeing another little piece and just pick it up. Every time there was a work day, he was the first one there and the last one to leave. Every time something needed to be done, he's the one to do it. 
if you're not willing to clean a toilet, take out the trash, vacuum a floor, I don't think you're worthy to be in a position of leadership. That's just the truth. That's a hard pill to swallow at times. But God wants servants. Or I think I should be able to get to do this. Or I should get to be able to do that. So-and-so's doing it, and why can't I? It is selfishness. They were more concerned with the position than with where God had them in life. They were not concerned about how it affected others. You see that in the passage. He said, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're wishing for. Oh, we can handle it, Lord. We got this. We're we're able. And he just reminds them, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. One of my favorite statements in life is, we have one life. We have one life. One life to live, one life to give. Off and on, I wear that bracelet. It just says one life. It's a reminder that I have one life, and it's not about me. My brother made it for me. And daily, it's a reminder as I wear it. Some days I do, some days I don't, but it just simply says one life. You have one life. And you either can use it for yourself or you can use it for others. But I need the reminder that it's not about me. Maybe you do as well. What does the Bible teach us about selfishness? We're going to jump around just for a moment. And I asked Matt to just throw them up on the board so that you can follow along if you're taking notes. But in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, here's the first thing I want you to see about selfishness. The generous soul will be made rich. And he who waters will also be watered himself. What does it tell us? That God doesn't want you to use your life selfishly for yourself. He wants you to give it out. The generous soul will be rich. If you're not worried about getting and you're more worried about giving, God says, I'll reward that. Life is not about us. In James chapter 3 and verse 16, says, for where envy and selfish, self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. Bottom line is, he says, listen, you want to be selfish? Well, then be prepared for confusion and every evil thing as well. There's no room for selfishness in the body of Christ and in the life of the believer. In Romans chapter 2, Acts, Romans chapter 2, I'm almost there. Verses 8 and 9. It says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. That's not a life that I want, but it's characteristics of those who are self-seeking. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 24 says this, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. We're not to seek our own well-being. We're to encourage others, love others. Seek other people's well-being. How do I enrich someone else's life around me? How do I make life better for someone around me who has a need or 
or has a, a circumstance that they need help with? How do, how do I enrich them? Or is life really just about me? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17 says this, But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you're so selfish that you have to use everything that you have for yourself, God says the love of God is not in you. It's not there. You've heard me say it, and you're going to hear me say it another thousand times over the next years. If God tarries and you don't fire me. Three questions. I wonder what I should do with my money, my goods, my time. I wonder what God wants me to do with my time, my money, my positions, my whatever. To the third question. I wonder what God wants me to do with his time, talents, treasures. You see, this life is not about us. Everything that we have is a gift from him, right? We agree with that much, right? So it should be his to use at his disposal. And yet, whoever has this world's goods, practically the material wealth of the world, money, possessions, but really time, talents, treasure, all that, sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I think we can answer and say, well, it really doesn't. That person is selfish. Another one here, Acts chapter 20, and verse 35 says this. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, that's the exact opposite of selfishness. So, just a few more verses. In Psalm chapter 119, if you would turn there. Just for a moment. This might be a verse you might want to underline. Psalm 119, verse 36. It says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Because you know what it is true so often in our lives is that we want and we want and we want. And so he prays, Lord, incline my heart to your testimony, not to covetousness. It's the exact opposite of selfishness. Ephesians chapter 3. Pages are sticking today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 says this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what life is about. That should be the prayer we should be praying. Brethren, Lord, give me. My name is Jimmy. How should I characterize selflessness? Selflessness. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. He says, don't think you're too great. Don't think you're all that in a piece of cake, too, because you're not. 
And the amazing thing is that we're all going to die one day. One day we're all going to pass away if the Lord tarries. We're all going to face the day because it's a point under men wants to die. And guess what? I would venture to think that most of us, after a period of time, will be forgotten. See, life doesn't revolve around us. Yes, your family will miss you. They'll cherish the memories. But years later, it's like you weren't even there. That's kind of a sad thought. But the reality is, we don't live for this life. We live for the life that is in heaven one day. In fact, Philippians tells us that our citizenship is where? In heaven, not on this earth. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. That's the exact opposite of selfishness. That's being selfless. I'm giving others preference above myself. Turn over a couple chapters to chapter 15. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's not about you. And then one more time over to Philippians chapter 2. We read a portion of that earlier. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. It says, By trust in the Lord Jesus, I send Timothy to you shortly. Is that what I want? Verse 19? Yes. Um, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that is a son with his father. He served with me in the gospel. Over and over. It's not about me. And what is our testimony? What is our reputation? What is our character in the world that we live in? Are we known for someone who's only caring about ourselves? Or are we known as somebody who also looks for the cares of others? And one last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 22. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I wonder if I would begin to live my life in such a way that it doesn't revolve around me. If I would make myself available to others. If I would allow my life to impact others and put others first, what might be the outcome? He says here that to the weak I became weak. In other words, it wasn't about me coming in there and saying, hey, look at me, I'm great, I'm awesome, look at me. Wow. Not about that. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul emptied himself of himself. And we can only do that with the help of the Holy Spirit working within us, right? can't do that on our own. Our, our own flesh is just way too strong. But with God's help, we can be selfless. And the blessings of being selfless is that we reach others for Christ by putting them first. I don't know about you, but selfishness, is being concerned excessively or exclusively with myself. 
seeking or concentrating my own advantage, my own pleasure, my own well-being without regard for others. More concerned with your own person than that of others. More concerned with possessions than with people. More concerned with pleasure than with contentment. And more concerned with positions than helping others. The question I think all of us that need to answer in our own lives is, are we really selfish? And if we are, what are we willing to do about it? Are we willing to deal with it? Are we willing to say, God, help me because I'm so selfish? I don't know about you, but I think of when Paul says that he's the chiefest of sinners. I will argue that point all day long that I'm the chief of sinners. Say, Pastor, you got this wicked life we don't know about? No. But I just know that every sin that we do is wicked. And every sin that's not dealt with breaks fellowship with God. And the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. I just know that we don't view sin as God views sin. And if we were honest, we'd all be arguing the fact that we're the chiefest of sinners. But by the grace of God. Amen? But by the grace of God. We need to stop being selfish and start being selfless. What is it that God's trying to do in our lives? to make us more like his son, Jesus. That's what ought to be our goal. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, I speak for myself as selfish. But my desire is to be selfless. And I pray, God, that you'd work in my heart to help me be more like your son, Jesus. But for all of us in the body of Christ here, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be honest and to admit just how selfish we can be. Lord, so often our greatest friends are me, myself, and I. And whoever is to be greatest among us must first be servant of all. God, would you help us to become selfless? And Lord, as we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 9, that when we do that, we can see other people come to know you. May this life not be about us. And may it be more about you and what you want to do in and through us. God, forgive me of my selfishness. Forgive us as a body, God, of our selfishness. May we live for others. May we live more for you, Lord. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as we do each and every Sunday, we have an opportunity to respond to God's word. And maybe this morning God has challenged your heart and say, well, Pastor, that's me. A lot of those tendencies are in my life. God's revealed that, and I need to deal with it. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes, yes, all over. Say, me this morning, God's challenged you as he did me this week on this. Anyone else say, Pastor, pray for me. That's me. I need need to work on some things. I need to be more selfless. Anyone else say, Pastor, pray for me. Can I challenge you to just take a moment, those of you who have lifted your hand, your heart towards the Lord, just pray. If God has convicted you of that, as God has challenged your heart concerning it, then you need to deal with it. And it starts with saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I repent of my selfishness. And to repent means to 
well, you're going this direction. You've been challenged with it, and now I need to stop and go a different direction and truly put it behind you. No more selfishness. And to ask the Lord Jesus to do a work in your life, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with his power and his presence so that you can live for him. Just take a moment and pray and ask God to help. Because we can't do it on our own. By our, on our own, we are so selfish. I am. Let's all stand to our feet. Lord Jesus, thank you for each one who's raised their hand and their heart towards you this morning, Lord. Lord, many of us, we struggle with being selfish. Selfish in our relationships with our wives, our children, our employers, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. God, we are so selfish at times. And our selfishness impedes the gospel going forth. It impedes things getting done because we want it done our way. Lord, leads to jealousy and bitterness. Lord God, I pray that you would forgive us, cleanse us, as only you can. Give victory this week in this area, Lord, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.